Hey everyone, welcome back to the Water Lab Podcast. I'm James Marshall and thanks for tuning in to another episode and thank you for the feedback of the first few episodes so far this season. They've been very well received, which is awesome. A quick mention of our partners, Pure Sports CBD and Fortune Favors, who have provided a great discount for all our Water Lab listeners, which you can go check out at waterlab.com or check the bottom of the bio of this episode where you can see it there. And as always, if you enjoy this episode, please give it a share. It is very much appreciated. But let's crack into this one. Today, I am honoured to have one of New Zealand's greatest lads with me. He is a genuine, all-round good sort. He may not have played professionally, but it's fair to say he's been the face of sport for a very long time. He's also the host of New Zealand's favourite podcast and staff chat, and I know he's had some <laughs> journey along the way. It is the great man himself, Mark Stafford. Welcome, Staffy. Thanks for coming on, mate. Jimmy, I appreciate the work you put into your intros, mate. It makes you feel good. <laughs> That's the goal. Pump you up, get you ready to go. <laughs> Who would have thought that you would be interviewing me after all those years ago when I first met you and I gave you a lesson on how to be a bookmaker. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You've, and you've in, interviewed me a lot throughout my career, so it's quite nice to be able to turn it around on you for a change. Yeah, nice. We'll see how you go. But I do remember that um, in Wellington when you came in, you saw my bookmaking odds for the surf to peak and you saw that my market was way off. <laughs> I didn't want to have anyone at too higher odds because I didn't want to have to pay anyone out. So... Um, you caught me on that and taught me a lesson and made me bump a few prices up. Yeah, yeah, your percentages were so far out, but you were a sponge, mate. You really wanted to know. Really, oh, no, we can't have Callum Givens too high. We can't have him too high. Yeah, Snakey will win. Yeah, like five guys under $3. It was just a rort. I still took the money. Yeah. And I still had punters coming. Oh, the boys love a punt. Yeah as I'm sure you'd imagine. But anyway, got a lot to get through with you, so um, let's start right back at the start. Take us right back to what it was like for a little staff growing up. Yeah, it was um, interesting. We moved around a lot, actually, born in Gisborne, and, um, but we left there when I was, I think, four. Yeah. Went to Hamilton, started school in Hamilton. We were only there for 18 months. Then went to Christchurch, right. and we were there about two years and then uh, I started school in Hamilton only briefly then yeah, a couple of years or so in Christchurch that's where I started playing rugby when I was five and a half yeah. uh, for Linwood and uh, the mighty Linwood Fergie McCormick country and then up to Palmerston North and so I'd lived in four cities by the time I was seven um, dad was a, a rep for the Europa oil company that was subsequently bought out by BP a few years later and then we settled in Palmy. So I grew up in Palmy, did all my pretty much all my schooling in Palmy and went to Palmy Boys. Um, played rugby right from, as I say, from five till I was 16. Um, and then had a bit of a car accident and could never play rugby again, which, which was gutting because it was in my sixth form year. We had an awesome first 15 at Palmy Boys that year. We actually had the Moaska Cup. Oh, really? And... Uh, yeah, it was, a, it was an awesome first 15, and I just made the second 15. We had trials. I knew I wouldn't make the firsts, um, but I made the second 15, which we used to play all the other first 15s around the, the district. But then, um, yeah, a, a shocker of a car accident and the first Tuesday of the May school holiday, so never got to play, play a game. Jeez. So what were you like at rugby? Were you quite talented in what position? Well, I was quite lucky that, like, from when I first shifted to Palmy, I was a second five. My whole life, oh, I was yeah. a second five. 
And um, I had a first five by the name of Gareth Williams, and uh, he was unbelievable. He was a little guy, but just he was like DMAC, you oh, know, yeah. he, he, he was just a freak. And I played outside him from when I was seven, uh, right through primary school, intermediate, secondary school. He made the first 15 the year I made the seconds. Um, but he made me look good, mate. Um, I was lucky. I had a bit of pace actually, Jimmy. Did you? And, uh, yeah, I had a bit of pace and he was rapid and I was about the only person in the team and the juniors <laughs> that could keep up with him. So my instructions were just to run on his shoulder. And if he needed help, which he really did, yeah. um, was, you. <laughs> was, was, was to just, I, I was the man in support, but his classic move was like half back to first five in the open side. And he'd just loop around and run down the blind so no one can catch him oh, and just yeah. run the sideline and score tries and uh he was a freak he was a freak did you ever think about um, making rugby as a career or um progressing it any further no well it wasn't professional then True. and um it was just i mean in those days there was just club and then um like the palmy boys first 15 played saturday's under 21 grade um against Kiatara and high school old boys and all that sort of thing and then they'd play these school games um, on a Sunday or a Wednesday and that sort of thing and then as I say our first 15 but then the progression from that was you'd go school then leave school go under 21s and then you'd hopefully get as a young fella and 21-22 was young to make a provincial side so your next step would be Manawatu yeah. and then All Blacks True. you know no yeah. super rugby yeah. and um, but you know Manawatu was strong um, they had the shield when I was a little fella in 78 and um that was awesome and i actually played a um curtain raiser to a curtain raiser to a spring box game so i made the i made the man or two under 12s reps um thanks to gareth williams because he was the first five (laughs) so yeah i got and i've still got the jersey and uh and then I was ball boy for the main game. So oh, wow. um, that's about as high a stage as I got, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> and then talk to me about this car crash. Obviously, it must have been pretty bad to um, stop you from playing rugby ever again. Yeah, so I had um, a good mate of mine, Aaron. He was um, he was the hooker in the second 15, and um, he was from Shannon. And his girlfriend lived in Opiki, which is the spud farming capital of the country. And um, he was playing club, he was playing second 15 for Palmy, and then he was playing for Shannon Seniors, who played in the Horror competition in the weekend. So we were going down on the Tuesday for his training in Shannon, and he was dropping us off at his girlfriend's place. And um, Gareth Williams, his girlfriend, so the first 15 were touring in Australia, his girlfriend was in the passenger seat, I was in the back seat, and we had to head on with a truck. And um, it was actually parked on the road at 6.30 at night, middle of winter. So pitch black, didn't have his lights on. And he was facing us on our side of the road, on the road. And we just drove straight into it, never saw it. Yeah. And so the driver, he was thrown out. um, He was thrown out of the car, out the door. So we sort of hit and um, the door flew open. He He flew out there. I went over the back seat and into the, I ended up, in the um, dashboard really and when, when the police and the ambulance arrived they thought I was the driver because I was in the driver's seat because oh. I'd come over the front and Megan who was in the passenger seat she went through the windscreen into the truck she died instantly and I was um, it was kind of weird Jimmy like I didn't I don't remember it I still don't remember the, the, the crash but I woke up in hospital in intensive care 
And um, and the weird thing was, I didn't remember the crash, but and I couldn't open my eyes. And, and my mum was sitting next to me on the bed, and I knew what had happened, but I don't know how I knew what had happened. And then about a week later, they moved me out of intensive care, and the ambulance driver came into the uh, hospital room and he had like this big fuzzy ginger hair and a big fuzzy ginger beard. So it's really distinctive looking. And I'd only just opened my eyes and I looked at him and I went, oh, ambulance like this. Yeah. And the ambulance driver said, oh, how does he know I was the ambulance driver? And she goes, oh, I guess he recognizes you. And he said, but, you know, I was, I was actually dead when they, when they got me and they, and they brought me back like a couple of times in the ambulance. And, um, but I recognized them. And then my memory was, I was looking down on the crash scene and that's how I saw him. And, and I was looking at this crash scene. It was like a dream. Wow. And I was like, Oh, what's going on down there? And it was like, Oh, that's me. Oh, that's. And, and, and then I woke up and I was in intensive care. Jeez. And then a, a number of years later, and I'm probably talking five or six years later, I was watching a movie and it was Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise and they were an Irish couple and it was when the land grab was on in America and they basically, everyone was on their horse and they said, go. And you could ride out and go and stick your flag in a piece of land and that you claim that as your farm. And Tom Cruise fell off his horse and hit his head on a rock. Yeah. And the camera did this big spiral up and looking down on him. Yeah. Like that was his spirit. And I said to my girlfriend, I said, that, that's what happened to me. And it took me back to, and then I understood what had actually happened. So and I'm not a religious person. I'm not a spiritual person yeah. or anything like that. But I guess that's what they call an out-of-body experience. And, um, yes, I was looking down on the crash scene of me being loaded into the ambulance. And, um, yeah, and so I didn't – that sort of ruined uh, all contact sport, basically. I had a massively bruised brain. And they said it would take five years for the blood to drain from the brain. Far out. And so um, – any tap uh, I got partial amnesia so I'd forgot I forgot everything and everyone I'd met in the previous six months except the ambulance driver was, except the ambulance <laughs> driver yeah but I looked at my school books from the first term and I could see it was my handwriting but I didn't remember writing any oh, of it wow. and new people at school that were in my class I didn't know who they were yeah um, but but I knew the people from the year before so wow. I spent a long time in hospital and then a long time going to specialists and stuff for the rest of the year. So I completely failed at sixth form because uh, I, I just wasn't there. And so I did two years in sixth form. But, yeah, I couldn't play rugby anymore. So I pretty much didn't do any sport that year. I started playing basketball the year after, which was probably a no-no because that's still semi-contact. Yeah. But, you know, I took up swimming. I did golf. I tried snooker, darts, yeah. anything, you know, <laughs> indoor bowls. But I, just, I, I really miss, really miss the rugby. And I remember when I was about 24, so like eight years later, um, I went to have a brain scan and I got the all clear that I could play. So I went to Kiatai and uh, I said, oh, I want to play. And um, been eight years. And so I got a start. Oh, I got a game with the Prezies. Yeah. So I go along to the Prezies and they said, oh, where do you want to play? And I said, oh, I'm a second five. And they said, oh, we've got heaps of backs. He said, oh, we'll chuck you on the side of the scrum. So I played blindside flanker. And after about two minutes, there's this huge lock running straight at me. And I went down a tackle and I just let him through. I was just too, I was just too scared. And then I looked at the coach and I said, take me off. You know, I, 
I didn't want to play scared, but I was yeah. so scared of getting knocked in the head. But so I'm pleased I had that two or three minutes because it had been an itch for eight years. Yeah. And until I was confronted with that situation, I realised, man, I was just so scared of getting hit. And you, as you know, you can't play rugby scared. Yeah. Banksy's made a career out of it, but it is. he has, <laughs> eh? Yeah, I must ask him why he'd not Banksy had. <laughs> And Ronan O'Gara, he's done all right. <laughs> oh, but anyway, have you got any um, long-term effects from that incident or is everything now fully sweet? I'm terrible with, um, so I get real travel sickness really bad. Oh, do you? So anything to do with your, what, like dizziness, like yeah. I can't go on the um, circus rides and stuff like oh, that because yeah. I'll pass out because I've just got no resilience in my head. Yeah, um, I probably get, one or two massive migraines a year. Yeah. Um, and then when I was about, I struggled with the years, but probably I must have been about 29. So maybe 10 years later, I was having massive dizzy spells, um, like almost to the point I couldn't walk. Like I was having to hold the walls to walk. And I was like that for three months. And um, long story short, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and, I went to about oh, six or seven GPs yeah. um, before I finally went to one and he said, it sounds like multiple sclerosis. And I said, oh, another GP said that, but they said that's a woman's disease because I didn't even know what it was. Yeah, so what is it? It's, well, I don't want to get too medical on you, but it's, you get lesions on your brain. And so you've got on the nerve endings in your brain, you've got these protective like sheaths yeah. on your brain, on, on the nerve endings in your brain to look after them. Because if, if you've got exposed nerves on anything, it hurts like hell. Yeah. So, but your body thinks that those sheaths are an infection and it attacks them. Oh, okay. So you've got your body attacking your own nerves. Yeah. And so, and it usually affects your, your vision and your bladder are the two normal ones. So a lot of people with MS get double vision and, trouble with incontinence and stuff and those two things didn't affect me but I basically had pins and needles over a hundred percent of my body a hundred percent of the day right. and like pins and needles in my lungs pins and needles just everywhere because it was like all my nerves were just alive Jeez. and so and it took so long for them to diagnose me like the first six GPs just said I had stress I just had stress and I had to relax and I said mate the only thing I've got stress about is you bastards telling me I've got stress, you know. So once I got the, the diagnosis, I um, I went into into uh, I became a day patient, and I for three days I got like massive doses of intravenous steroids. Yeah. And um, like I hadn't been eating, I'd lost so much weight because I couldn't eat. I was I was stressed because I knew there was something wrong with me, and I I'd dropped down to about eighty kilos, and um, and then I went on these steroids, and I kid you not, mate, like, holy heck, if you want to put on weight, take a massive dose of intravenous steroids. Because <laughs> in about four weeks, I'd gone up to 110 kilos, wow. and I was just a fat bastard, eh? <laughs> but I was, I was eating, my mum would come down to Wellington and cook me a week's worth of meals. I'd eat it in a day. Real. I was having seven meals a day. I was <laughs> ravenous because the steroids, the steroids just kills everything inside your stomach that takes the nutrients out of your food. So you have a meal, 
your body doesn't get any nutrients, so you're still hungry, so you just keep eating. Yeah, I was, I was, oh shit, I was fat, eh? It was, um, <laughs> it was interesting. But then I, re- then I really went on to the um, natural health side of things, and I got in touch with a woman in Auckland. She's actually a pharmacist, but she's into natural health and alternative ways. And I was just chucking like evening primrose oil, vitamin E, salmon oil, um, vitamin B, um, various amino acids. I was spending a fortune but I hammered my body with natural defense yeah. and touch wood. I've never had another MS attack since. So about 15% of people with MS, it's called, uh, you can uh, benign. So you have one attack and don't have another one. Yeah. So I'm, I'm lucky that I'm one of the 15%. Um, most people, they'll have an attack every seven years, then every six years, then every five years. And it gets closer and closer as you get older and yeah. older. And you end up being, you know, wheelchairs, immobilised, it affects your speech um, and all that. So you still have your marbles, but um, you wouldn't think so by looking from the outside. So, yeah, I did a bit of fundraising and stuff and I used to go and speak at the newly diagnosed sessions for new MS patients and try and help them and give them some hope and all that sort of stuff. So that that was a hell of a chapter. Jeez, your body's been through been through the ringer. <laughs> yeah, it got hammered, eh? Yeah, and you're also a cancer survivor too, aren't you? So, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, experience? mate. Jeez. Yeah, that was um, that was probably about um, five or six years after that. Yeah, and um, yeah, and I I didn't have any pain or anything, so I got testicular cancer, and you know, you, you don't really know. I was feeling a little bit off. Yeah. Not sick or anything, just just felt like I was about ninety five percent all the time. Yeah, and then my girlfriend, she just said, you know, one of your plums is twice the size of the other one. <laughs> 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 and I said, oh yeah, that's you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, you better go and get it checked out. And I went, oh, it doesn't hurt. You know, it's, you know, I don't know, maybe you know, you know, you'd Google it, and yeah, sometimes one's bigger than the other. But I went to the doctor and. He said, oh, yeah, I don't think it's anything sinister, but we'll get an ultrasound. So I went and had an ultrasound, and I'm looking up at the screen as the girl's doing the ultrasound. And I, and I just said, shit, that doesn't look good. Yeah. And I said, what does that look like to you? She goes, oh, I can't say. But I could tell by her face yeah. there was something wrong. And she says, we'll give the results back to your doctor. And I said, oh, okay. So I thought I had like a hematoma or a cyst or, or something like that. Yeah. And... Um, I got in the car, left the radiology place, and I'd only been in the car five minutes, and my GP rung me. He said, mate, no way to sugarcoat this. You've got testicular cancer. And I was like, you are fucking joking me, you know, after all this shit. And and, and I remember um, I I, I pulled over. I was halfway back to work, so I was sort of between home and work. And I pulled over, and I bawled my eyes out, and it was like, and I didn't sort of know why. And it was, and I don't think it was because I had cancer. It was just like another bloody thing, yeah. you know? And um, and then I thought, oh, so I just went home. And, um, and I thought, oh, this is a waste of time. And so I just went into work, told them. And then um, I can't exactly remember how it happened, but I, ended, I had health insurance. So I think within a week, I was um, in a private hospital and they basically cut your stomach open, sort of level with your belly button. And then like your testicle, your, your nut is connected to this tube that goes from, from your ball bag up to, up to your stomach. And they basically pull it out <laughs> and then they slip sure. the tube tie a knot yeah. and then sew up your stomach. 
And the most painful part was because they cut through all your abdominal muscles every time you move, just the grab of your abdominal muscles. Like anyone that's had a hernia operation or something, or, or a cesarean and stuff like that, they know how because your, your abs are locking all the time. Yeah. And, and so I went home and got over that sort of operation and then they test you. And um, so they said if you're a bloke, testicular cancer, if you're going to get cancer, is the best one because it's so far away from the rest of your organs and stuff. So yeah. the risk of it spreading is light because it can only travel through that tube. So they take that whole tube out. So I got blood tested like within days and they said my marker count was fine. And then I was having a blood test every two weeks and about four, six months after the operation, um, they said, oh, it's back. Uh, the cancer's back. And I'm like, oh, where? And they said, oh, we're not sure. But, you know, most marker counts are in a normal person. Like everyone's got cancer cells in them. Yeah. And you're, and, and they, there's like cancer marker counts out of 100. So a normal person's from memory is about between four and 10. Yeah. So I'd have my, have my test and I was like eight, seven, six, 11, eight, four. And I, and I was going along like that, fortnight, and I was, that's all right. And I was about to drop back to a once every two months blood test. And then I got a marker reading of 95. Holy. And um, yeah, it had come soaring back. And so I went into work. I went to the specialist and he said, mate, because we took the tumour out, we know what sort of cancer it is. We, we're not, legally, we're not allowed to say we can cure it, but I'm 99.9%. We've got it. We've got a chemo that will fix that. So, And they said, but it does knock the shit out of you, this chemo regime you're going to go through. And I went, right. So I told work, took three months off work, organised, got all my affairs in order. And, and one of the managers at work that I got on really well with, he was in the cancer ward. And so they had a bed for me next to him and we could just shoot the shit while we're going <laughs> through this bloody awful time together. So I go to the hospital with my sister and my father to admit me in. And, the, and then the last thing they do before they start you on the chemo is they take your height, your weight and, um, and a blood test to, to figure out how much chemo you're going to go on. So I took my height, took my weight, got in my hospital pajamas and then they came in and they said, oh, your blood tests come back normal. And I went, what? And they said, yeah, you're just back to normal. And I said, well, someone's lying. You know, what, you know I'd prepared myself to go through hell and then yeah. they're telling me I could go home. And it was normal. I said, test me again. And so they did and it was normal. Huh? And like my father and my sister were stoked, but I was so pissed off. Like you'd think you'd be happy, yeah. but I, I wasn't. And I, and I was in the hospital. I say, just fucking give it to me anyway. Cause I was so, <laughs> I was so ready for it. And um, so I ended up going home, went back to work the next day and they're like, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm clear again. So for about the next three or four years, I was having an X-ray every three months and an MRI every six months, blood tests every month. And I was just a bloody pin cushion. And um, to this day, that's never come back. So, yeah, it was um, it was horrendous, mate. It was uh, it was horrendous. But I think I dealt with the cancer diagnosis better than than someone who'd never had anything wrong with them. Yeah, because because I'd been through the horrendous car accident, I'd been through the MS thing, and then the cancer one. I was like, oh well, it's just a friggin' another one. Yeah. didn't make me stronger. Um, it just made me realise you actually can win these things. Yeah um it's not the and when you get a cancer diagnosis people think it's a death notice as well mm. and when i was diagnosed i since learned that it was back then it was something like 
90% of people that get diagnosed with cancer survive. Oh, really? Yeah, so it's really high. Yeah. And the number of people when I, because it's sort of embarrassing as a bloke to say testicular cancer, but the number of people that came and said, oh, I've had that, my brother's had that, my father had that, my cousin had that. It's, yeah. uh, cancer's so common, yeah. So what was the go with the positive test? Did you ever find out how you had a 95% ratio? <laughs> no, so like, like I said to the, it was Professor Dady, who was the foremost oncologist in New Zealand. Yeah. And I said, how does that happen? Is it, I just need to know how that happens. Like, is it human error? Is it, you know, and yeah. I don't care what it is. So I, I just need to be able to label what it was. Yeah, 100%. And, and he, he'd been like a professor of oncology for 20 years. And he said, this is the only the third time in my career I've seen it happen. And he said, I can't explain it. Like your body, he said, the 95 was correct. And the four that we get today is correct. How your body's done that, I don't know. So he said, I'm sorry, I can't explain it. Geez, what an experience for you with, in terms of your body. You've been through absolute ringer. Anyway, I want to get to um, sort of your work. Everyone knows you as the face of the TAB, the face of sport in New Zealand. Um, how did you get into that and where did that all start? Yeah, so I was, um, I'd had a few little bits and pieces. Like my, my first career out of school was actually insurance and I worked for state insurance. Oh, yeah. And in my days, um, when you left school at Palmy, uh, Palmy Boys, you, you could like apply to, what was it called? The State Services Commission. And they basically staffed all of the government departments. So I was really good with numbers and I wanted to be an accountant. And um, so I applied to them and said, I'd like to go to the Inland Revenue because Inland Revenue put you through university, paid for it, and you could get your chartered accountant's license and all that sort of stuff. So that was sort of the path I wanted. Yeah. And being from Palmy Boys, I mean, no one went on the dole. Everyone got a job. It wasn't wasn't a big deal. You either went to university or you went working. And I didn't want to go to university. I was, I was sick of people standing at the front of the room telling me stuff that I didn't really want to know about. Yeah. You know, I just wanted to go out and, you know, get a car and car stereo and, you know, <laughs> that sort of stuff. And so I, I got down to uh, Inland Revenue. We're going to take uh, two graduates, two, two school leavers and, um, so I got down to the last four and I, and I went to the last interview, but the day before the last interview, I flattered with a um, hairdresser and uh, the day before was the man of two hairdressing champs. And so I modeled, I modeled for him. And so I had like, I turned up to this interview bro with um, black around the sides, white on the top and a big red rat's tail. <laughs> was it supposed to be the best dudes, was it? Or yeah, yeah, it came second at Man of Two Champs. Yeah, it came second. And um, yeah, so I go to this interview and didn't get the job because of my haircut. And, and the, the guy that was doing the employing was a mate of my father's and he rang dad and told him why dad kicked me up the arse. Eh? So I went and got my hair cut and coloured and got a job at state insurance. <laughs> yeah, so I, I was there for a few years and then I did some sales repping and then I work for income support for a while. Um, but I really wanted to get into the TAB because I, I love to punt. And um, yeah. and I was betting offshore because New Zealand didn't have sports betting at that time. And um, then New Zealand, the TAB announced they were going to do sports betting. So I, I wrote to them and said, I want to be a bookmaker, you know, because I kept all my own figures. I had like these books. Yeah. So I had I had an account at Centibet and an account at Darwin All Sports. And I used to keep logbooks on where I'd bet and how much I'd win and how much I'd lose. And, Love that. and I said to my I said to myself, I wouldn't 
I wouldn't add up the columns till I'd been going a year because yeah. I didn't want to influence how I was betting. So at the end of the year, I'd like, it seemed a bit, I'd lost 800 bucks. And on Darwin All Sports, I'd made about fourteen hundred. Oh yeah. So I cancelled. I cancelled my Centibet account, thinking it was their fault, <laughs> <laughs> and kept the Darwin one. And I, and I loved it, mate. I just loved. I loved the challenge. Yeah. And I wasn't betting big, but I was betting often. Yeah. Um, because to me, it was like not the size of the win, but getting a win. You know, even if it was a ten dollar bet on something for, that I'd figured out that they'd had wrong. So I was always looking for. Not necessarily mistakes, but I was I was hunting value bets, and yeah. I'd, I'd find one, you know. So I didn't get a job at the TAB, and then as sports betting expanded, I um, kept applying, and I never got the job. And I was, I found out they were employing from within, so I applied for other jobs at the TAB just so I could get in, and I got one of those, um, sort of a little bit fraudulently. Um, they said, have you done um, QA before? And I said, yeah, yeah, done that. It's, it's awesome. I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> so, so I got got a job as a QA tester at the TAV. And after three months, they said, oh, well, you're a really good rooster, but you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> so well, they moved me somewhere months. else. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, and then I suppose I'd been there about a year and a year and a half. And then I joined the sports betting team and as a junior bookmaker and sort of did a couple of years as a junior and learning my craft. And, and then I became, so you have a junior bookmaker, a bookmaker and a senior bookmaker. So then I was a bookmaker for a while. And then about the same time as I became a senior bookmaker was when um, part of my job was I used to fax the odds to Sky to put on a graphic before oh, games. Really? And, and the producer rang me one day and said, oh, you know, thanks for sending me through the faxes. Do you want to come down to the stadium and do it on screen? And I said, what do you mean? She said, like, talk on camera, you know, just give the odds on camera. And I said, I've never done that before. She goes, oh, you'll be fine. Yeah. So I said to my boss, they want me to do it on TV. And they said, oh, really? Oh, well, if you want to, you can. So I said, okay. So I did one game. I did um, Hurricanes Crusaders at Westpac Stadium and um, – and afterwards, she came up to me. She goes, that was awesome. Um, do you want to come up to Auckland and do it next next week yeah. on Friday? And yeah. I went, oh. And that's sort of where it started. I just started doing Friday night super rugby games. And then it became Friday, Saturday. Yeah. And then it became All Blacks. And then we just started doing NPC. And then cricket, boxing, netball, the, the whole lot. It was, um, it was awesome. So you'd never done any media before. This was just all jumping in and just seeing how it went. And, yeah. and it went well. Yeah. Yeah, and because I did that rugby one, so I did the one on rugby, and everyone we said, "Oh, that was really good. Um, we might, we should put you on trackside and talk about <laughs> sports odds and stuff." So I started doing trackside sports stuff, and yeah. then as I got to know a few of the boys, I had a sports show on trackside for a while, and I'd get like I got Snakey into the trackside studio one day, yeah. and Scooter and Floss, and um, I remember taking um, TJ Perinara in there, and um, you know, TJ's pretty staunch, sort of relaxed dude. And we walked in and he walked into the master control room, which is just a sea of screens and dials and digits and sliders and all that. And he walked in and his face, he just went, wow. <laughs> he just, he was so amped. And then, and the people thought it was awesome that TJ thought that their job was awesome. And they yeah. said, oh, do you want to have a go? And he's going, yeah. So he starts vision switching live trackside <laughs> pictures and fading in and out stuff. And he said, when I'm done with rugby, I want to do this job. 
Yeah, so I did a bit of TV and stuff with Trackside, and then Trackside Radio started, and I did a show with Nisbo for a long time on radio, and yeah, um, yeah it's just, and I did a lot of stuff with um, TVNZ and News TV3 and News Talk ZB, whenever they wanted a TAB angle or a Melbourne Cup angle and stuff like that, um, they just rung me. I still get phone calls today. Sure, yeah. <laughs> popular man and talk me through the process of setting the odds as a senior bookmaker i know a lot of punters listen to this show so they'd be interested to know how the whole process works well very different now to how it was i loved how it was it was very personal um you took it very personally if your book lost money um and that's the way it should be you should treat it like your own money because when I became a bookmaker, I pretty much stopped betting because I was getting the thrill by being on the other side. So I was actually betting against the punter and trying to massage the market. So yeah. it's old school, but if you if you punter out there, I'd still do what the way I did it. Um, so basically, if you take Super Rugby, for example, I'd get the Hurricane squad when it's named, and then I'd pick my starting 15 and my bench, and then every player I'd mark out of 10. So for like the Hurricanes, I'd have Geordie Barrett, 10 out of 10. Um, your wings, you, let's say Ben Lamb, I'd probably go 8 out of 10. Um, Julian Savia, 8 or 9 out of 10. And you'd work your way through. And so you, all the players would be out of 10. Then I'd have the bench out of 20 as a collective. Yeah. I'd have the kicker out of 10. Um, and then I'd have the coaching staff strength out of 10. Yeah. And then you add all of that up and you get a number. So let's say it's 180. Yeah. And then I'd do the same for the Highlanders. And then you'd go through all of that, um, mark all of them. Marty Banks are 10. Um, but you, you go through go through all of that and they might come out at 171 yeah. versus 180. So my starting point is the Hurricanes win by nine points. Now that wow. sounds crazy, <laughs> that but that was my power ratings. I needed a starting point. Yeah. So I had a starting point of nine and then you'd say, okay, who, and then I'd have a whole lot of stats. I had in a spreadsheet, every single super rugby result from 1996 to 2006. Wow. Uh, I'd have the weather conditions, what the score was at halftime, what the first scoring player was, who the referee was. I'd have everything. Yeah. And, um, and everything all had a different weighting and, then home ground advantage, um, how strong you are away from home. So like uh, the Brumbies back then had an amazing home ground advantage. Yeah. The Crusaders had an amazing home ground advantage. Um, Hurricanes, not so much, but the Hurricanes, Hurricanes, Crusaders games, for whatever reason, always take the Hurricanes and the points start. For some reason, they get up for Christchurch games. Yeah, hate them. And um yeah, I know. There's a, and I always remember, there's a quote that Jerry Collins gave me. I, I asked him one day, I said, why do you guys play so well against the Crusaders? And he said, in a very non-racist way, he said, they don't like brown man rugby. <laughs> and which to me was like, in their face, late tackles, high shots, just rack them up. So the Hurricane, Wellington teams always went really well, better than they should. And I'm not saying they won more, but they, they went better than they should against Christchurch teams. And Auckland teams always did well against Wellington teams, whether it was the Blues or Auckland. And, uh, and it was one of the things I tore my hair out trying to figure out why that was. But Auckland seemed to get up for Wellington and Wellington seemed to get up for Christchurch. Yeah. It was a really interesting thing. But if, if you're a punter and you want to make some money, keep some stats. Um, 
like I always get asked, you know, what's a good tip? What's a good tip? It's like do your own work, get your own stats. Like when Paul Honus was refereeing, uh, three out of five games, the first stoppage in play was a penalty. Really? Well, he liked to stamp his mark on the game. Now, it was a penalisable offence, but some referees might just like to let that go. But he liked to be, I'm here, I'm the boss, penalty. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so always take first stoppage and play in Paul Honus games as a penalty, and also take penalty tries. He loved a penalty try, Paul oh, Honus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Loved one. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of the day, you were basically just choosing the numbers. You were putting the odds out, and then just waiting for the punters to adjust them or move them at all. Yeah, so I'd come up with my prices, and then we'd have a. In the old days, it changed a bit. We didn't do this for long, but we'd get all of the bookmakers in, and I'd have my prices, and I'd have the whiteboard, and I'd say, without telling them my prices, I'd just go around the room because you want a lay of the land, and you want what are the public expecting the price to be, yeah. and so that all give their prices. We'd debate it, and I'd settle on my final price. I wouldn't often move from mine, but occasionally you would. Um, but if you're a punter out there, Jimmy, and you're thinking oh, I'm I'm going to take the Chiefs this weekend, I reckon they'll be you know, a dollar eighty, I'll take them, and then I put them out at two twenty. Um, you're all over it. Yeah. So as a bookmaker, you're thinking, well, they take them at one eighty. Why sell them at two twenty if they'll be sold at one eighty? Mm. And so the last thing I do before I put the prices in was, I've got to be happy. As soon as I push betting open, I've got to be prepared to take a ten thousand dollar bet on either side. So you know, All Black South Africa, it's a dollar twenty four twenty. If, so, if the first bet in is ten thousand on South Africa, we're going to lose forty-two grand. Am I happy to take that? Yeah. And if I'm not, I make a final little tweak and then <laughs> open it, and then you put the seatbelt on and watch it come. It's oh. awesome. And I obviously um, you would have got a, a few wrong in your time. I remember one time in particular. Um, I think I'd mark Taranaki at about three dollars to win the comp. You open them at. <laughs> 30 the complete outsiders i couldn't believe it if i could have punted i would have jumped all over that one but talk me through that big stuff up (laughs) yeah i didn't do that one (laughs) yeah like it's really hard like um you'll get for example let's use manawatu for example um they've just signed a pretty big name it hasn't been made public yet but i've only found out sort of secondhand but i know it's happened um, so if we don't know that and we put the markets out now and then all of a sudden you hear they've signed this player, this player and this player and you've put them as rank outsiders and that's quite often what happens, yeah. especially with Mitre 10. There's a lot of undisclosed and it's not intentionally undisclosed form, but signings and, and stuff like that. You know, and So you put a price out of $30 on Taranaki and people start punting it. And then three days later, you found out that Bowden Barrett's been released and he's playing the season for Taranaki. Yeah. Of course it's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, yeah, information is key. Eh? And, but even yeah. in the so, final that year, you had Tasman favourites for the ITM Cup final. Talk me through that one. That was definitely you because I remember talking to you before the game. <laughs> yeah, that was me. That was me. I believed, you know, that, you know Tasman and the Oracle. Yeah. You know, what... what <laughs> What can you, they were just on a roll. I just there's something there's something about Tasman, and the thing I like about Tasman is every province has got history, yeah. But Tasman hasn't, yeah. They're, they're developing a history, and they embrace that. They are making their history now, and I got wrapped up in that a bit. I got I got a bit um, 
emotionally invested in Tasman. I love what they do. I love their fans. I love their, I love the area and, and their stadium. Um, and that might have swung me a little bit their way. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. And talk to me about this um, staff specials. I know a lot of people um, probably hit you up about them. They think I think most people think it's a tip from you, but. Um, you work for the TAV. Surely you don't want these staff specials to be winning too often. Yeah, no, not well. You do want them to win. You don't want to go. I think the worst was about six weeks in a row. It didn't come in. It's marketing, um, but we tried to find something topical. Yeah. So you'd have um, the Barrett brothers versus, versus the Yuani brothers, most points or yeah. most tries, or so, or something like that. Or if oh, I remember one actually, Geordie Barrett got an amazing kick from half beyond halfway to win a game. Yeah. So the next game, the staff special was Geordie Barrett to get a penalty over fifty meters because oh, it's yeah. topical. Yeah. So we work out what the actual price is like two dollars seventy five, and we go, oh, we'll make it four. Yeah. So the special, every staff special, was value. Yeah. It was above the percentage of it happening. So. People would say, you know, we'd do the odd special at twelve dollars. Um, its true price might have been eight. So an eight dollar event is a twelve percent chance of happening. Mm. You know, so the true price is eight. It's still only a twelve percent chance of happening, but we're going to give you twelve dollars instead of eight dollars. Yeah. So yeah, they say, oh, your your specials are shit. They don't come in. And I'm, like, well, I'm not saying they'll come in, but they are value. But if you took it every single time, you will end up ahead of the game. Yeah, so if you're watching the game, are you wanting the staff special to come in or not? Yeah, I do because it's got my name on it. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you and you don't and you can go and have a beer after the game rather than go and hide in your hotel room because <laughs> you, you'll get shouted a few beers if it comes in. But the funny thing was, when it came in, I was a mug. And if it didn't come in, I was an asshole. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you obviously, once you opened your market, you never wanted that market to lose. Um, no, it's it's funny. You don't. You can't win all the time. Like yeah. betting is a bit of a on the on the bookmaker side. It's a churn, right? So you don't want to. If you turn over a million dollars in a weekend, we we would hope to make one hundred and fifty thousand profit. But and if we make a four hundred and fifty thousand profit, that's a great weekend. If you make 450 the next weekend and then 450 the next weekend, the punters aren't having fun in the game. Yeah. So you don't mind the odd loss. Like probably the best example was when um, David Tua fought Lennox Lewis. That's probably still the highlight of my whole bookmaking career because that did about 10 times what an all-black test did in turnover. Really? And we had quite an old computer system then, and I was just sitting there watching the numbers, just going ching, 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 and the liability on David Tua just going out the door. Yeah. And we'd laid off a lot of our liability offshore. We'd put about a quarter of a million dollars offshore on David Tua, and we were getting $6 on him offshore, and he was $2.75 in New Zealand. <laughs> but we were still losing nearly a million dollars if David Tua had a one. Wow. But in the end, we were actually happy to cop that million-dollar loss because there were so many first-time bettors yeah. having a bet in that. And so their first ever bet being a winner, and then they go back to the TAB to cash in their ticket, it's a good-feeling experience. Yeah. So, yeah, we made a lot of money off that fight, but if we had lost a lot, we would have made a lot of um, new customers oh, and, that, and that sort of thing. 
So did you ever have to do that often, go offshore to sort of cover your bets? We used to a bit, actually, and it was quite a common practice um, back in the day. But we actually realised after a few years, we never made withdrawals from those bookmaking accounts. Yeah. So, and we sat down and we did a feasibility test over about five years and we got all of our transactions and, and we found that if we'd never laid off, um, we would have been better off. Right. So we stopped and um, pretty much everyone in the world stopped laying off. You'd only do it, you do it very rarely if it was like a, um, like a huge liability, yeah. but um, it swings and roundabouts. True. And talk to me about um, a young childhood hero of mine, Steel Balls. You obviously remember him. He would have been, uh, he would have sent the shivers up you a few times, but um, any good stories about him? Yeah. Interesting. Hey, eh? interesting character. Like, most punters that have a decent win um, don't want to be publicised. They don't want people to know their big wins, big losses, or anything. Yeah. And back in those days, on the Sunday news, I think it was, on the back page, we had the top 10 bets of the week. Yeah. Winners or losers, just the biggest punts. And Steel Bulls was on the back of that each week. And, um, yeah, he made, he made his name and, and made his money off the five all black losses in a row when Tane Randall was captain. And I think his first bet was something like 20,000 on the all blacks to lose. What were they paying? Oh, maybe three bucks. Oh, yeah. So he got 60 and then he put the 60 on and they lost. And then he put the 120 on and they lost. And then he put the 200 on and, oh, and they lost. Great. So yeah. And then he, he bought an amazing racehorse with the Lyle Creek with the money and, um, he was he was a character man, and um, he went on the speaking circuit talking about his punting and and all that. And he's actually a good fella, yeah. But just professionally, we couldn't sort of associate with him. You couldn't go and have a few beers with him because it'd just look weird, you know. It'd be <laughs> like me, be like me going and having a beer with Bryce Lawrence, you know, while he was refereeing. It'd yeah. just look a bit sus, yeah. you know. Is he is he still punt? Doesn't punt anymore? Did he lose it all? I I don't know actually. I don't know. I know he was um, selling cars in Wellington for a while, but oh, yeah, but he bought a nice house and yeah, he did all right. But I, I, I actually, yeah, he certainly didn't bet to the degree that he did back in his heyday. Now, so now the biggest punters are probably the whole boys get paid um, group. Now, are they? Are they the ones? Well, boys get paid. Love it. Yeah. Love it, mate. If I, if I, there's a um, privacy issue that I can't tell you actual details, but if you knew what the biggest punters did make your eyes water um the top 10 punters of the tab and i'm not talking now but when i was up to here and it um nine of them were offshore oh yeah 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 so how do they not get a restricted account they're obviously losing quite a bit because i know restricted accounts are becoming more and more common um, for successful punters or punters who i guess punt a bit smarter um what's the go there how do these guys get such um big figures down um, yeah, so if you have someone, so I'll use my example. Um, like I'm a massive Tour de France fan. I love the Tour de France and I do all my stats. I do all my study. And um, I opened an account at Bet365 and uh, I had a bet on like stage four or five, the first time they went in the mountains. And I put 20 pounds on a guy and he won at 12s. Yeah. So that was 240 pounds. So I was quite happy with that. And then the next night I put 50 pounds on a guy 
and he won. He was only paying six, so I won three hundred pounds, and I got an email from them saying count closed, Classic. not even restricted, yeah. closed. Yeah, <laughs> two bets. <laughs> three six two five are going to be the worst though, haven't they? They're, they're straight. I into knew it. too much. Yeah, but like it, the TAB, it's it's an interesting thing. Like the TAB do have that right. So if you if you've got a business and you've got a customer that is costing you money, do you want them as a customer? Are they a valuable customer? And people get all testosterone about it saying oh you got no balls you got no this you got no that um but it's like the supermarket sell bottles of coke for a dollar limit six otherwise you'd go and empty the shelves and (laughs) sell them to you know the dairy owners can only go and buy six so it's we still want people to have fun but you know stable snow stuff um you know Sean Maitland rings you and says mate the Scotland team have got chicken pox we're putting out a B team get on so you charge in and, and you take Italy because they're going to be playing Scotland B. Yeah. Italy are paying eight bucks. You put 10 grand on, we're 80 grand in the hole. You've got the information we haven't. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a protection thing, but bottom line is it's a company and it's got to make money. So restricting people isn't the first go-to, but it probably is a necessary tool. Yeah, fair enough. And the other thing you sort of met, sort of touched on there was fixing, I guess, or a little bit of insight. How much do you think goes on in sport? How much are you guys aware of? What are your precautions around that? You've got as long as you podcast, want. <laughs> whole new podcast. <laughs> I'm really passionate about this, eh? Yeah. Like, I'll try and give you a Reader's Digest version. I went to a, um, I went to a conference in Fiji which sounds glamorous. I was there for two days. It never stopped raining, like proper raining the whole time. But FIFA and Interpol put on a conference for keeping our game clean or something like that. And it wasn't long after the cricket was in the um, spotlight for it all. And I went over there and it was put on by Oceania Football. So there was a table from New Zealand. There was me and another guy from work. There were about three cops couple of um, government employees, a sports lawyer, um, referees, bosses, all that. So there was our table of 10. Then Tonga had a table, Cook Island, Samoa, Papua New Guinea. So all of Australasia were in there. And the head of Interpol was there. And they told us about match fixing over in Europe and stuff and told us real-life stories. And I'm like, holy shit, this is, this is unreal. Like, mm-hmm. what is happening over there? And I'd been privy to a bit of stuff just – you know, and I, I can't really talk, but there, there's stuff I know that's gone on, and I'm probably the only person in New Zealand that knows it. Yeah, and I've chosen to keep it that way. But I met with a guy, um, Declan Hill, and he wrote a book called The Fix. And read the book, holy heck, it's an amazing if you're into sport and sports betting, read The Fix by Declan Hill. Right-o. Sport New Zealand bought Declan Hill out to New Zealand to address all these CEOs and chairs of all the sports organizations and I went along to listen to him because I'd read his book and only four sports came along because New Zealand don't see it as a threat and so then I said to Declan oh can I grab a cup of coffee with you after your presentation just for 10 minutes and he said yeah so went across to the intercontinental house bar and had a coffee and I I sat there for an hour with him telling him what I'd seen and he and he said I was the first guy he'd ever met that understood both sides of match fixing equation. Yeah. So like the bookmaker side and then the punter side. And so it was nice to meet him and that sort of thing. And then he rang me that night and he said, I want to see you again. 
and before I go back to the UK. He's like a professor. So I flew back to Wellington and I had a day with him. Oh, oh man, it was friggin' mind-blowing. Like, what he told me in confidence was just unbelievable. Like, I guess I can tell you that um, the biggest crime in the world now, like the, the drug smugglers, the weapons traders and all of that, they've all, the big players will chuck that in for match fixing. And, yeah. um like one story I'll tell you that one story I'll tell yeah, you. Yeah, go on. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> so there was there was um the Malaysian national football team. Yeah. Um approached the LA Galaxy football team for a friendly as a warm up for the Asian Cup. And they, they sent them a letter and contacted LA Galaxy and said, Look, we'll we'll pay for the hireage of the stadium in LA. Um we'll pay your players a you know a fee. And we'll have this game and uh, to help us warm up, blah, blah, blah. And these are the dates we can do it. And, and then they said, oh, you come and see us. So the, the president flew over and went and saw them. And they signed the deal and it was all done. And then about two months later, the Malaysian team went over, played LA Galaxy. Um, LA Galaxy won 4-1. And then Malaysia went back. It then came out that it wasn't the Malaysian national football team. It was just a match fixer guy who'd made up a letterhead Holy and had a bunch of players on tape and they put copy Malaysian national jerseys on them, took this team <laughs> to LA and said there needs to be five goals in this game. They punted it on the black market <laughs> to be five or more goals and it more than covered all the expenses and everything and he made millions. Far <laughs> out. That is crazy. <laughs> it's, it's awesome, mate. <laughs> <ain't it? laughs> there obviously can't be too much of that going on. Not too many teams would be that um, clueless, they wouldn't they? Oh, look, it's amazing. Like, there was a, there's a very famous cricketer who was, who was, they were touring England, an international cricketer. And him and his manager um, were in the house bar and this guy came up to them and said, oh, I'm so-and-so from, I think it was Adidas, Adidas or Puma, I can't remember, one of, one of those brands, gave him the card um, and he was the marketing manager for India for this brand. Yeah. And this team were after England were going to go and tour India and they said, we, we just want you to put a sticker on your bat and wear our clothes and stuff like that, just for the Indian tour. And we'll give you like 20 grand a test or whatever, a nominal amount and blah, blah, blah. And so they had a talk and they said, yeah, okay. So they signed the deal. So when we go to India, you contact us, blah, blah, blah. And they said, um, so they went out for dinner and a drink to celebrate. And then the player and his manager were in the hotel and, and the, and the Indian Adidas rep said, oh, I've got to get, get going. He says, I've left a gift for you in your room. So um, the player went up to his room and there was a bag of money on his bed and a Russian hooker. And um, <laughs> what they did, and thankfully the player didn't avail himself of the Russian hooker, went and reported it to the team manager. And what, so it was a fake Indian Adidas rep with a fake business card. And they'd put hidden cameras into his room. And so they were going to, capture him having sex with this woman and then blackmail him when he got to India with the tapes they had of him because um, he was a married man. So it's, it, it's, it's way more than just fixing sports events. It's now blackmail. And so it, it, it's, called the, it's called the honey trap. And um, 
and a few cricketers have been caught Jeez, by the hunting trap. Level, eh? One, one in particular who was at the top of his game got caught in the hunting trap and retired young with a chronic knee injury that would never allow him to play again. Knee injury. Never played again. Wow. <laughs> cricket's That's ob- just the tip of the iceberg <laughs> of my fixing story. Jeez. <laughs> Obviously, cricket's an easier sport to fix than most, so cricket would be a huge target for those guys. Do you think it's ever going to get into rugby, or do you think it's got into rugby? I don't think it's in rugby. Um, but I'll give you an example of, I mean, <clears throat> years ago, years and years ago, I got a phone call, um, an anonymous phone call from someone and said, hey, I'm just letting you know that in the game on Saturday, um, Errol Brain's going to score the first try. The team's going to set it up for Errol Brain to score the first try of counties. Yeah. And, and it was a Ramfurly Shield game against, and I, I still can't remember whether it was East Coast or Poverty Bay. It was a low, low <coughs> third division team or something like that. Yeah. And I said, oh, yeah, whatever. And I didn't even know what match fixing was. That's how long ago it was. And so instead of opening up like the number eight in a one-sided game might sort of be $16, $18, first try scorer. So I opened it at 15 As soon as I opened, money started coming on. And I went to 12 and then I went to 10 He ended up paying less than the wings. He was like five or six bucks <laughs> with a decent liability. But back then, a decent liability was only five grand on a, on a shitty game like that. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I was just thinking, this is weird. This is weird. How, how does everyone know this? And then... The game kicked off and counties were all over them. And then the wing made a break for counties and he had about a 60-metre unchallenged run to the sideline, to, to, to the try line. And he was about 15 metres clear of anyone and he got five metres short of the line and you saw him think and he just went to ground, just dropped. It's, you know how you do in training, yeah. you just set up a fake <laughs> ball and he just dropped and placed the ball oh, and everybody shit. comes careering in and then they trapped the ball in the bottom, five metre scrum. And I went, oh, you are kidding. It's going to be a pushover try. This is oh, what their, wow. their, their plan was. So they have the scrum and it collapsed and then they have another scrum and it collapsed and the ref gave a penalty try. <laughs> so <laughs> They all lost. <laughs> yeah, they all lost. The and I never told again. anyone because I, I was fear packing myself. <laughs> Paul Honus was riffing. They should have done their research. (laughs) But they were just putting like 10 or 20 bucks on each for a piss trip. So it wasn't like a big organized illegal sting. It was was quite innocent. You know, I've seen a couple of games in New Zealand. Again, not recently, a long time ago. First scoring play, drop goal. And teams taking drop goals in the first minute. And you're just going, oh, okay. Okay. What about um, Ryan Tandy um, at the Bulldogs? Did you, were were you involved with that at all? Yeah, I was. Um, I was, actually. Uh, that was um, Bulldogs against North Queensland. That's it, yeah. And um, we were get, starting to get money on um, first scoring play being a North Queensland penalty. Yeah. And anyone that watches any rugby league, is, they only take a penalty when time's up on the clock, pretty yeah, much, yeah. or when it's real close. And first scoring play hardly ever happens. And then when a bet comes in that goes through a certain threshold, it's intercepted onto our computer. So it's not automatically accepted. And it came up and someone wanted $5,000 on first scoring play being a North Queensland penalty. And it was paying 10 bucks. 
So yeah. it's a 50 grand loser. Yeah. I mean, we don't normally hold five grand on the whole book, let alone one bet. Yeah. And I thought, oh, they've made a mistake on the bet slip. So I just went, they've probably ticked the times thousands. So I gave them $50 yeah. and it cancelled. And then 5,000 came on. And I said, oh, this is weird. So I rang the agency while the bet was on my screen and just said, do they really want $5,000 on first score? Do they know what they're doing? And then he said, I'll just ask her. And I went, her? So it's not a sexist thing, but very rarely do you get a woman wanting a $5,000 bet first scoring play <laughs> on a rugby league game. <laughs> and I just said, oh, no, look, she can't have it. She can have 100 bucks." And then so um, didn't take it. So I suspended the book. And then I rang a mate of mine that works for a bookmaker in Australia. Yeah. And um, I said, Davey, I said, are you getting any action on the first scoring play penalty to the, to the Cowboys? And he said, yeah, just now. And I said, so are we. And he said, shit. So he, he, we're all in, we're, all the bookmakers are in this network. So uh, that selection and that option was suspended right through Australasia. Real. Yeah. And then we ended up just closing the um, book and people were saying they wanted to have a bet on it. And we just said, oh, technical difficulties, we can't do anything about it. Um, and we've got cameras and all the TABs and pub tabs. And I got a look at the person that was putting on it was a, I don't know, she would have been in her twenties, had a pram with a baby in it. And it just didn't stack up, you yeah. know? So then I watched the game. I watched the game and it was like three or four minutes in. Cowboys on attack in front of their post. Ryan Tandy makes a tackle and just lies on the guy. Yeah. You know, he's going, get up, get up, get up. And he's lying, 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 lying. <laughs> Blow it. And, and then got up and, and he blew it yeah. right in front. And I'm like, oh my God. And um, Jonathan Thurston saw there was a massive overlap out to the left, so tapped it and double skip pass, try in the corner. <laughs> so bloody idiots tried to go through with it. So they must have known that we were on to them, but they still tried to do it. Do you know how much money they managed to get on? Obviously, they didn't get any from you guys, but what about around the world, do you know? Uh, not much at all. Like I think, when I say not much, I think about 50000 and collapse, but they didn't collect that because it was so bloody obvious. And it wasn't and, a winner. <laughs> yeah. And the next day I got a call from um, New South Wales police. Um, so they'd rung the bookmakers and they said, oh, this is the guy that found it. And so they rung me and they were going to fly a guy over to talk to me. I said, mate, I haven't got much to say. You know, this is what happened and we can give you the footage. And, and it turned out that the woman was the sister of – either Tandy's flatmate or Tandy's agent's flatmate or something like that. But, um, yeah, they went to jail and uh, got convicted and Ryan Tandy ended up with the wrong crowd and he, yeah, he, he either overdosed he? or yeah. killed himself. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was an absolute shocker. Crazy, mate. So many, so many stories and behind the scenes, eh? It's crazy. To yeah. Think. You're definitely going to have to write a book one day. Oh mate, I I would love to write a book, but um, you know, I've had three people ask me to to do a book, and I said I I I couldn't tell you everything, you know, and 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 they said oh we we won't say who who it's by, and I said there's only one person that can tell you the stories I can tell you, and it's going to be obviously me. I said unless you can pay me a million dollars and give me new identity and i'll go and live in the jungle in thailand or something but yeah i'd love to i'd love to do it though oh yeah. geez that would be a good read <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway we could talk about match fixing and gambling for years on this but we better move you on love it i love it geez i love it fun <laughs> i actually was i was 
Oh, so gutted. Oh, right, we'll get to this, but um, 2020 obviously got made redundant from the TAB. Oh, I was so gutted, not only for you, but I also wanted to jump into that scene as well and come join you and be, <laughs> be sitting next to you in Wellington and the officers making those odds. But um, we will talk about um, the 2020. I know it was a horrible year for you. Pretty much everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong and um, a real tough year for you mentally. How did you handle it? And um, talk me through the year. Um, yeah, it was a tough old year. Like, I mean, no one predicted the COVID thing. And when it sort of started rearing its head in sort of February, March, and we were just going, oh, there's something happening overseas. And yeah. then it all happened quite quick. And we, we sort of went into lockdown. And um, I think it was late March, wasn't it? We went into lockdown. And pretty much all sporting events around the world just stopped. Um, horse racing here stopped. Um, Aussie horse racing was about the only thing that kept going. Um, we were doing betting on um, Ukrainian <laughs> underwater tonsil hockey and you know, <laughs> all sorts of random things. And um, we were just, everyone was just stuck at home. You know, no one was going into the office. And, you know, I just lived by myself and I started going a bit crazy. You know, the first week was great, just sitting at home. Yeah. And we were doing Zoom meetings with the work fellas and we were having fun with as I say, Uzbekistan table tennis and volleyball from random places. And um, yeah, and then we'd been sort of, I think we locked down for five weeks, didn't we? Yeah. And then um, in the fourth week, um, we were having Zoom meetings with our CEO and um, he was doing the best he could, And but no one had any answers. No one knew how long it was going to take, but the TAB was just bleeding money. Like, mm. Same as a number of businesses, the costs don't stop, um, but the income did. And so we're a high income, high expense company. Um, and when the high income stops and the high expenses don't, you're just bleeding money every week. Yeah. And I remember on a Tuesday, we had a Zoom with um, the CEO and, and you could send in questions and his redundancies on the cards because it was starting to be talked about around New Zealand. No, we're not, we're not thinking about that there, that yet. And then on Thursday or Friday, we were told, yep, there's going to be some redundancies. There's going to be a restructure. You'll all be contacted by your managers. And then I got a phone call on the Monday morning and saying, you've been disestablished. And I'm like, holy shit. And they disestablished, uh, I think it was something like 220 out of six, 600 staff. Wow. So a third, just just over a third. Yeah. Um, no warning. Just happened. Bang. Like that. Crazy. And, and that sort of rocks me. And um I was numb for like a day. I just didn't quite know how to process that because the country's in lockdown. You've just lost your job mm. and then you have to have a negotiation process and blah, blah, blah. So you stay on for about another three weeks, um, but no one could do anything and you knew you were going. And um, yeah, it was horrible. It was, it was about, yeah, about three weeks later and I'm, um, I think we'd gone into a level three so people could go out again. And I had to go back to work, take my laptop, my phone, my car, my security pass. And I felt like I was just giving my life away, you yeah. know? And then I just sort of, I hired a car for a week um, and then came home and thought, now what do I do? You yeah. know, you'd, you'd, I just lost, I'd sort of lost my identity in a way in that. And my phone, when it, I didn't tell everyone straight away. I just, I just didn't feel the need to tell everyone. I told my family and a couple of mates, and 
and then it was starting to filter out that I'd lost my job and um, I'd started painting um, during lockdown as well. And I was doing a particular painting and, and my phone was going, ding. Oh, mate, I heard you lost your job. I'm real sorry if there's anything I can do. I went, oh, thanks, mate. Blah, blah, blah. Get back to painting. Ding. Oh, sorry to hear about you. I don't see something. Yeah. So, and um, I think someone had put on Facebook, can't believe TAB let staff go or something like that. So yeah. I did a Facebook post and I don't do videos of myself and all that, but I yeah. thought this will just stop my phone dinging so I can finish my painting. <laughs> so I did, a, <laughs> I did a video and um, I was just basically saying, yeah, I've lost my job. Cheers. See ya. And then just at the end of the video, I just said, actually, if, if you've got a friend or a family member who's been made redundant and is going through what I'm going through, here's some, here's some tips you can do for them because this is what I need. Yeah. And so maybe that's what they need. So I did the video and sent it out and then carried on painting. And my phone just kept dinging and I thought, oh, they'll see the, the message. And about 20 minutes later, counting back, and there's like 150 messages, yeah. like private messages off that Facebook post from complete strangers yeah. saying, thank you so much for that. My brother lost his job. I didn't know what to do. And all I said to them was, you don't have to give them answers. You just have to listen. Just yeah. have two ears and just listen and just sit next to them. Don't, yeah. don't try and fix their life because yeah. um, in their mind, their life's fucked. So just let them think that for a while and, and just be there for them. And... Um, and I remember like the great man, Ross Filippo. One of the greats. So one of the great. In fact, I'll, I'll get to that shortly. So not long after I was made redundant, my sister had been um, having chemo and she was in hospital during lockdown, not doing well. Uh, again, a long story short, she, uh, they said she was terminal and they said you can either stay in hospital, you can go to hospice or you can go home. And she said, I just want to go home. She'd been in hospital for four months. So they stopped all of her drugs. She had three really good days at home and then three terrible days at home and then passed away. And so I lost my job. And then I lost my sister. There was no funeral. We couldn't go there. She, her husband couldn't get back. And then the next week, my older sister was diagnosed with cancer, with bowel cancer. Right. And I was just like, holy, holy shit. And I was just dealing... I was dealing with them one at a time. So I was made redundant. I was devastated. Then my sister died. I didn't care about being made redundant. Yeah. And then my sister died. And then my older sister got diagnosed. And then I, so I was more worried about her and worried about my mum and dad. Uh, and then Ross Filippo rang me. And it was about nine o'clock at night. And I was sitting on my back step. And it was the first time I address, addressed it all collectively. Like it had all, all actually happened, not one thing had happened mm. and one thing, and it was all collectively. Now, I was a blubbering idiot for 20 minutes. I couldn't talk for yeah. 20 minutes. And he just sat there every minute or so. He'd just say, I'm here, bro. That's it. Yeah. I'm still here. And 20 minutes of silence just with a mate on the end of the phone, yeah. you know, and, and I didn't feel better afterwards, but. Um, I needed I needed that outlet, and that to me illustrated that you just need someone to be. You don't need them to fix you, or don't, that you don't need answers. You just you just need to share the air with someone, yeah. sort of thing. And then it was just like shit, you know. Oh, and then just before my sister died, um, and actually just after I saw you in Wellington, I yeah. was doing my redundancy road trip my best mate died in Invercargill. Oh. Um, he, he was diagnosed motor neuron disease in February and you usually live two to four years or something. He, 
he lasted three or four months. He got pneumonia and just didn't have the lung strength and, and passed away. So I was driving down to see him and I'd got as far as Queenstown. Um, I'd spent the night before with Ben Herring, one of the great nights in Wanaka. <laughs> and, and um, oh, he'd be a good potty, mate. Oh, oh. Yeah, <laughs> Get Jarman on. Um, yeah, and then I'd got to Queenstown. I rang his wife and she said, oh, he's not very good. And I said, I'll come down now if you like. And she said, oh, no, he'll, he'll be okay. I'm just going to ring the nurse, see if there's anything more I can do for him. And then she texts me 10 minutes later, said he just died. So I just jumped straight in the car wow. and drove to Invercargill. And so I had the week of a week of that and uh, at the end of that week. And then I was going to work my way back up the country, visiting friends of family that I'd lost touch with and all that. I was really looking forward to it. But after the funeral on the Saturday, I woke up on the Sunday and I was going to spend a few days in Invercargill with his wife and daughter, but... I had nothing. I was, I was Gone. done. Yeah. You know, I was absolutely done. And I got in the car, the weirdest thing. I drove to Christchurch. I was going to stop in Dunedin for a couple of days, but I didn't. I, I drove to Christchurch, pulled into the motel, walked into my room, and I didn't remember one thing of the drive. You know, and it's that's a six, seven hour drive. I remember, I didn't remember any of the cities. I didn't remember anything Jeez. at all. Yeah, and um, I arrived, and I um, actually messaged Brad Moore, oh, yeah. the, the now assistant All Black coach, who's one of the great men. And I said, "Are you around?" And he said, "Yep." Are you in town? And I said, "Yep." And he said, "Meet me here at ten o'clock." So we went to this cafe at ten o'clock, and um, and I didn't tell him what had been going on with me for a while. He knew I'd lost my job. We just sort of talked about that, yeah. and. Um, He's just such a good man, just a good, such a good positive man. And then I tried to catch up with Tim Bateman down there as well, but he was busy at, at work and stuff. And he's another good. And I learned that I just needed to um, be with positive, be with good people. Yeah. And it's people in my position, and I felt it for a while. You feel like you're burdening someone when you go to them and say, "Mate, I'm having problems." And I thought, "Who? What gives me the right to burden someone with all these deaths and?" Um, job losses and and stuff but you know when I started my trip I, I caught up with a friend in Rotorua someone else in Hawke's Bay caught up with Shannon Paku caught up with you in Wellington and just just sitting down having a coffee with you that was just good for me yeah just just to be with be with a good person and then that gave me fuel to go to the next one and yeah like people say how did how did, how did you get through it I actually don't think I did I don't think I have yeah and you know how everyone says, um, what doesn't kill you makes stronger and you climb the mountain, you'll reach the top and all of that. Yeah. Not everyone does. Yeah. You know, I've actually failed to deal with it and I accept that I've failed to deal with it. I actually don't think I'll deal with my sister's passing until I'm with her husband. Um, but he's a British national and can't get into New Zealand. He's applied twice on compassionate grounds. He's got her ashes. She wants them on the beach where my parents live. But he can't get into New Zealand. Yeah. But it's awesome the Wiggles can. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and the West Indies cricket team. And, yeah. uh, uh, but hey, yeah, I'm not going to get all bitter about that. But I don't think I'll probably grieve Fleur until her husband's been here. Yeah. Um, my other sister that was diagnosed with cancer, she's finished her treatment. She's doing really well, oh, um, which is good. Um, I've I've got a short term contract with. Uh, TVNZ for the America's Cup. So it's amazing, mate. Like before, that would just be a thing. Now it's a win. Yeah. 
you know, so and you've got to view it as a win. Like my hours at TVNZ are long, they're full on, it's hard, but I love it. Yeah. Um, because I'm part of a team and I'm contributing and that's what I really, really missed. Yeah. You know, and there, there was a no worse feeling waking up on a Monday with no job, no one's ordered a painting, no money in the bank, yeah. and you're like, what the fuck am I going to do today? Yeah. That that was hard. That was reality biting. You know, I applied for like 30 jobs. I got two letters and 28 nothings, you know. It yeah. was, um, shit, it was demoralizing. Jeez, I bet. And you talked about your painting. You're obviously a very gifted painter. Where did that come in? And was that, was that a bit of an outlet for you? I know I've seen a lot of your work and it's impressive. So if any Waterlade listeners want to buy some, come <laughs> yeah. go message old Staffy. He'll do an absolute treat for you. Yeah, it's um, it's taken off, eh? It's um, it's a little bit quiet at the moment. Like, work creates work, and so I'd do a painting, I put it on social media, and it'll make someone go, "Oh, I wonder if he could do that. Yeah. Wonder if he could do my cat. Wonder if he could do my horse. Yeah. Wonder if he could do my favourite rugby player." And um, I actually I was taught by my maths teacher at Palmy Boys. He taught me to do one painting because I wanted to buy a painting on his wall. And he said, no, I come back after school, I'll teach you how to do it. So he taught me how to do it and I did it. That's cool. And it was David Bowie. I was doing like a painting every three or four months, not for anyone, just for shits and giggles. And then I did a Michael Jackson one and, um, and I had about five people message me on Facebook. I put it on Facebook because I thought, oh, that, that's coming out quite cool and just put it on Facebook. And they, five people wanted to buy it within half an hour. So I sold it. And then I just started doing the odd one. And then in lockdown, I just started painting just for, um, not for therapy for what was going on, but probably more just for a mental holiday, just yeah. to stop worrying about shit all the time. Yeah. And, and it was good. And then, um, yeah, and then I've slowly been um, painting more and more. And I just painted one the other day of, a, of an All Black from 1937, which was a guy's grandfather kicking oh. a goal at the SCG. True. Um, and I've had the Auckland Racing Club. I'm talking to them on Monday about doing one live at, on Auckland Cup Day or Derby Day in oh. front of the stand, which should be a bit of a challenge. But <laughs> How long does it well, take you to do one? Um, well, that's the thing. Like that rowing one probably took me seven or eight hours. Oh, yeah. So I, I don't want to be at Ellerslie for seven or eight hours painting a bloody horse or, or whatever it is. <laughs> so I might have to start it at home and then finish it there or oh, something. Yeah, so. Yeah. But it's good. It's good. Yeah, I do enjoy it. And um, yeah, it's fun. And what about your podcast, Staff Chat? How's that going? Have you got many plans for that? Um, I've got Kevin Barry booked for next week. Have you? Oh, that'll be good. Yeah. So for an hour podcast, I'll probably need three questions. (laughs) (laughs) I've been been trying to get him for like two or three years, but he lives in Vegas and um, he's incredibly busy. But I actually saw him this morning. Um, went to a sparring session um, with Joe Parker and um, I said, mate, when are we going to do the podcast? And he blamed me. I said, I've been chasing him for years. And he said, yeah. you've never given me a time. <laughs> I said, okay, Tuesday morning. So, yes, yeah, so I'll be recording that next week. Um, just over the last few months, I found it really hard, not for motivation, but just um, just getting stars to align, you know. I've done yeah. I've done a few, um, but I'd like to do one a fortnight. So, yeah. Once I get another one in the can, mate, I'll be I'll be back up and running. But it's interesting the back catalogue still getting heaps of downloads, eh? Because yeah. I try and make them timeless. Yeah. 
you know. Well, and you've got so, some unreal guests that you've had on already, eh? So some of the great, some of the great guests. Yeah, and I find like I'm a massive podcast listener, and I quite often find the ones I enjoy the most are the people I haven't heard of. Yeah. Um, and like one of my favourite ones of the staff chat one was Julian Dean. Yeah. Who's probably, well, he is New Zealand's best ever road cyclist and his stories about the Tour de France and stuff. Now, people don't, it's one of the least downloaded because people go, Julian Dean, haven't heard of him? Scroll. Yeah. You know, and, and then they'll go and listen to Justin Marshall, Andrew Mertens, you yeah. know, and, and the big names. And, and they're good yarns, but um, learning stuff about, so like your one with Flinny, the other that I listened to the other day was just yeah. off the hook. Yeah. I've got no idea who he was, but what a story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what a story. <laughs> yeah, he, he'd had a story, all right, and he had no filter, so it was a good one, that one. <laughs> no filter, bro, yeah. <laughs> oh, but what a story you've had and what a journey. Um, yeah, really appreciate you coming on and sharing all of that. But as always, we've gone to um, the Instagram for some questions and a good face of the TAB lots of messages have come in for you oh dear <laughs> first question would you rather the turbos win the Ranfurly Shield or the All Blacks win the yeah. next World Cup turbo shield all day all day Passionate I was there the day I, I was there the day they lost it in 1978 <laughs> and I will not go to my grave till I'm there the day they've won it. I've been to every Shield Challenge since 1978 except two. Really? Wow. I'm committed. You are committed yeah. to the cause. And now they've got those couple of secret signings. This could be their year. Wait for the signing that's going to come out soon. <laughs> You're at 12, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I've signed an All Black. There you go. I'll tell you oh, that. Oh, jeez. The teaser. How much does it, the TAB love it when there's a draw in a match? Must be a bumper payday. Yeah, generally it is like a rugby match. Yeah, I remember once um, before there was multi-bets, we used to do winning team and margin double. Oh, yeah. So you go this team 12 and a, and draw, draw sort of paid about well, moon money, like yeah. five, six hundred bucks. And one weekend in Super Rugby, the two games we'd put in the multi was a draw, draw. No one had it. The next weekend, Everyone took it. We were like losing a gazillion dollars, but neither of them was a draw. But generally, yeah, draws draws are pretty good. Yeah, not the draw half time full time because that's quite popular. Yeah. But the draw full time by itself's all right. Yeah, the half time one happens quite often. Eh? Okay, yeah. three sportsmen that you'd love to go on a night out with. Or on a night out, okay. So it's not just me. It's like have a proper night out. Yeah. Uh, Charles Barclay. Oh. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo. Jeez. Um, just because his offcasts would be like incredible. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one more, Marty Banks. Oh, great choice. <laughs> yeah, because you can't you can't be the ugliest one in the group. <laughs> <laughs> that's true okay most embarrassing tv blunder you've made oh i remember once when justin marshall was playing and we were doing the pre-game and off camera like i've told justin marshall this myself actually but when he was playing i thought he was an absolute wanker <laughs> i couldn't couldn't stand him and we were talking off camera and i can't remember who i was talking to and I'd used the C word when I was talking about Justin. Yeah. 
Um, and then it was like all of a sudden I was on live and I turned around and I said, well, it's no surprise to the favourites tonight at Canterbury. <laughs> yeah so i said the c word on tv that was pretty bad <laughs> pretty bad oh that's good stuff okay the most surprising sports character that you've met um what you thought they'd be like versus what they were ma nonu yeah um first time i met him i'd booked an interview with him for sky and and i said oh hey ma as he's walking past he goes i don't have to talk to you and I said, oh, who do you think you are? And he went, oh, okay, okay. And I just stood up to him. Yeah. And we became we became friends. And uh, so he, he'd always come across as a brash, arrogant, um, bully, yeah. all of that. He is one of the softest, nicest blokes, does heaps for kids, heaps for charities, really cares. And as an example – few years later i was doing a story for sky he must have been bringing up a hundredth game or something we were up at his house yeah and i've been going for ages and i said oh mate can we just pause because he lived by the airport i said i've just got to pop down and pick up my parents from the airport they're coming back from australia yeah and he said oh yeah we'll go in my car so we jumped into his car and drove to the airport and he said when they come through what's their names i said bruce and virginia and he said when they come through point them out and so they come through the doors from international i said those two there and he goes bruce virginia (laughs) (laughs) and dad's like man (laughs) he grabs all their bags and put it on the ute and and they came up and watched the rest of the filming made them a cup of tea and uh, away we went oh that's the sort of bloke he was yeah yeah so he was the most surprising for sure okay what is your best and worst moment working with ants on head, heart, and balls? A lot of people love head, heart, and balls. Yeah, we're fishing at making a comeback with that. Oh, that'll um, be good. Just, just quietly. Yeah. Um, best and worst moments. Probably the best was the day he'd had a nose operation at hospital <laughs> on the morning of the show, and he discharged himself and walked in and did the show with the drip that they'd had up his nose hanging out, his hospital gown on, nothing on underneath because the hospital's <laughs> just up the road from the studio and full of morphine and did a show. <laughs> Commitment to the pod. <laughs> that, that was probably the, the worst was probably all of the others because he, he, he's 24 hours, he glistens with perspiration. He's, he's the most sweating human and I, and, an ex-girlfriend told me that his underpants are made of chamois material because he sweats so much. How, how bad's that? How bad's that? Oh, ants. What a lad. Okay, uh, next question. Best multi you've heard of? Best multi I've heard of was probably, I'm going to guess the amount of time ago. I'm going to go about eight years ago. And it was a race meeting at Ellerslie uh, between Boxing Day, New Year, somewhere around there. And a guy took an eight-leg horse multi. Um, and then he took seven-leg, a six-leg, and a five-leg. Oh, yeah. Seven of them, seven out of eight won. And he told a few of his mates what he'd done, and they did it as well. And um, seven of them won. If eight of them had have won, it would have been millions, but it was like 850 grand. And he only outlaid about 500 bucks. True. Yeah. Jeez, that's good stuff. Was it all in the same meeting? 
Yeah. Yeah, back-to-back races. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> what a tipster. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next one. Favourite ground to present on? Oh, Forsyth Bar. Is it? Yeah. Like, the zoo is... It takes you back to, not childhood, but early adulthood. Like, yeah. the zoo crowd are so awesome. Like, they are juiced. But not once did I see trouble. Not once did I see a fight. Yeah, it was like good humour, great drunk students, first years, and all that. So much so, one year they said, "Come and watch the game with us." Because um, so I said, "Okay." They always used to see me and chant my name and <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. And and it wasn't an ego thing. It was just a good fun. And then yeah. I particularly remember one day I was standing there and I said. And the floor manager would go, when he says such a word, I want you to all wave your flags. So I'd say the Highlanders and I'd turn around and say the Highlanders and they'd all wave their flags. Yeah. But as soon as I started, there was a group of about 12 guys and they just banging on the fence. Staffy's a good cunt. <laughs> <laughs> and it was crystal clear through the microphone. <laughs> so I went up and watched the game with them and then they said, come back to the halls for a few jars. So I was back at the bloody first year university <laughs> students all getting on the source with the boys of the guild. And it was awesome. It was all just good, clean fun. Yeah. No scraps, no, but oh, the atmosphere there is off the hook. It's an amazing playing surface. Yeah. Um, these club sandwiches, these sushi and the, and the photographer's robe, you know, happy days. Oh, they need more stadiums like that around New Zealand, eh? Oh, boy, do they, yeah. Okay. Your favourite thing to do in Thailand? You mentioned Thailand earlier in the pod, so. I've probably been there six or seven times. Yeah. Uh, three of them I went to. Well, actually, it sounds weird, but I love going to Muay Thai boxing camps. Oh, so yeah. three of my trips, that's what I did. Yeah, yeah. so uh, for three week stints, and you just get just go crazy. It starts at six in the morning. Yeah, um, with a two hour Muay Thai training session, and then you have breakfast. Then you do a two hour um, like cardio or weight session. Then you have lunch. Then you do two hours Muay Thai. Then you do yoga, and then you cooked. Um, <laughs> I sometimes took the afternoon off and went to the beach though, but. It's awesome, Jeez. you know. It's all and it and it's away from all the tourist hotspots yeah. as, well, as well. It's right at the southern tip of Phuket, so you know I I love Thailand. I love the Thai people, um, but away from the touristy areas. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that answer, but that's good stuff. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> three most underrated players you've watched that should have been All Blacks. Wow, should have been All Blacks. That's a goodie. Yeah. Should have been All Blacks. Wow. James and Tom. Uh, <laughs> should have been All Blacks. I reckon David Howell would, should have been, could have gone real close. Yeah. If only had a little bit more speed. Yeah. Um, he was quali- <clears throat> absolute quality. Yeah. Um, so he'd be one. Maybe Jamie Booth. Oh, he will be though, <laughs> won't he? <laughs> Boothy, Boothy might be getting a little bit old now. I love Jamie Booth. He'd, he'd go good in the All Blacks, I reckon. Yeah. Um, and someone like uh, so many get All Black tests now, eh? That, yeah. It's pretty easier to name three that shouldn't have, but um, <laughs> uh, I can't think of another one, Jimmy. No, that's all right. Two. I'd go way back to Dale Atkins, who couldn't get rid of Zinzan Brook and Buck Shelford, but that's a long time ago. Okay, let's go with him. He sounds like a lad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next question. Oh, from Reggie Goods. What's your thoughts on breeding future sports stars, e.g. 
Lomu versus Valerie Adams. Not a great example from Normie, but <laughs> I guess I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to Richie and Gemma McCaw's offspring. Oh yeah, holy hecka! Yeah, that'll be phenomenal. Dan Carter and Honor as well. Oh, and Honor, yeah, true. And they, they've got like four, yeah, or four, gonna... three, and one or more, one more on the way. Yeah. Jeez, are you a fan of it? Breeding sports stars. Oh, not intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> I see they're doing that not, in China. They're doing some of that in China, eh? That's the next big thing is um, breeding athletes. Breeding like, athletes I've heard in that in China, they, when, when you're like a teenager, they come and test your VO2 max, your height, your weight, your wingspan, and all that, and say, right, you're a volleyballer. Go. Gone. True. <laughs> yeah, they find out the right size and shape. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I don't mind if it happens incidentally, but not intentionally. I'm just concerned which athlete Reg Goods has got his eye on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Who's winning this year's Super Rugby? Mm, I'm sort of probably the Crusaders again, um, just because that's the safe thing to say. I think the Blues might give it a shake, eh? Yeah, fair enough. What about the Canes? Mm. Yeah, good semi-finalists. <laughs> Out of five Good. teams, <laughs> Good there's no semi-finals this year. <laughs> Good top four side. <laughs> okay, last question. If you could give one piece of advice to someone who's going through a tough time at the moment, what would it be? Ah, uh, it would be don't expect answers today or solutions today or tomorrow, and it's just like. People say take it a day at a time. Uh, well, for me, like a day's too long. It's like go down to ten minute blocks. I got down to ten minute blocks. Yeah. Like for the next ten minutes, I'm going to wash the dishes. Wash the dishes to win. Yeah. Sounds stupid, but it's just those baby steps, and and just things will come right. I mean, I still haven't got a full time job. I'm nearly been unemployed for like eight months and we're not unemployed but yeah. you know what I mean I, have, I want a full-time meaningful job and just you know it'll happen keep keep surging keep charging keep doing things and, and find little things that you like like painting as I say was it's not going to fix it but it gives you a mental holiday and mm. take those little mental holidays if it's golf if it's walking a dog if it's throwing a frisbee if it's making muffins if it's just just have little things with nice little wins and acknowledge the win yeah, acknowledge the one and then set up your next one, even if it's hanging your washing out, yeah. you know. doesn't have to be winning gold medals. Yeah. Jeez, that's powerful stuff and great advice from the from the man <laughs> himself. Well, really appreciate you coming on the podcast, Steffi. I've obviously got to know you a little bit throughout the career. Loved seeing you before games. Loved coming up and having a quick yarn to you before kickoffs and seeing what the staff special was or getting the odds off you. <laughs> and, um, yeah, your smiley face is infectious and... You're just a really good person, genuine good guy who's willing to help anyone out and really appreciate you giving up your time and sharing your story so honestly and I'm sure a lot of listeners will get a lot out of that. So, yeah, really appreciate you coming on, mate. Yes, Jimmy, mate. You need a painting for that wall behind you too, by the way. It's very bare. Let's sort something out, mate. I'll be in touch. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> See you, mate. Hey, cheers, mate.